I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. The premise behind any business partnership seems obvious. Build a structure and set of rules around performance and profits that not only create agreed-upon fairness, but more importantly, position the partnership for long-term success. That seems simple enough. But a new study indicates that many private equity partnerships have institutionalized economic gaps, intergenerational conflicts around who gets how much of the profits, that not only threaten their own stability, but also may raise serious questions for global managers who invest in them. Why does the gap exist? How real is the problem? And what lessons might exist for other types of business partnerships? Dr. Josh Lerner is chair of the Entrepreneurial Management Unit and the Schiff Professor of Investment Banking at Harvard Business School. He also serves as vice chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on the Future of Investing, and he's director of the Private Capital Research Institute, a nonprofit devoted to encouraging access to data and research about venture capital and private equity. Lerner was named one of the 100 most influential people in private equity over the past decade and one of the 10 most influential academics in the institutional investing world. His latest paper is Pay Now or Pay Later, the Economics Within the Private Equity Partnership. Josh, thank you for joining me. That's a really large range of roles and honors. Instead of uh, private equity partnerships, I'm very tempted to make the conversation about lessons in time management. How, how can one person possibly wear so many hats? You're, you're not going to also tell me you're a scratch golfer, right? I'm afraid not. That that's one arena where I can say I'm truly not not uh, a star. Okay, terrific. Great. Well, it'll make a lot of people feel good that we've we've identified one area. Why don't we stick to uh, uh, private equity partnerships and and your new paper uh, for this conversation? Then as well, uh, a little bit about the Private Capital Research Institute and, and uh, the important work that gets done there. Um, so so the paper that you uh, um, have have recently written. Uh, pay now or pay later, the economics within the private equity partnership. In it, you study, uh, as I mentioned, issues regarding intergenerational conflicts and how they impact the continuity of these organizations. What inspired you to address this question? Well, when we look at the institutional investment arena today, you see this in private equity, you see it in venture capital, you see it in hedge funds and a whole variety of other areas. Uh, Issues around stability and succession are really critical uh, in the sense that, you know, many of the most successful investment organizations were set up in the uh, 1980s. You have partners in many cases who have been running these firms for 20 or 30 years. And at this point, the question of a changing of the guard comes up, and there are many critical issues that emerge. We're also seeing a lot of interest in trying to um, do things around the edges here. So, for instance, there's been a number of efforts to buy minority stakes by institutional investors in uh, in private equity and hedge fund partnerships, um, which, again, you know, raise a whole series of questions and, you know, given how little we know about this topic from either the academic or the practitioner perspective, it seemed like it was um, a really ripe area for exploration. And before we get too deeply into the results, um, tell me tell me about your process. Uh, how did you research the question? So we ended up hooking up with a large, um, large global limited partner, so an institution which is invested in many funds over the... Um, 
over the years. And they, needless to say, were asking many of those same questions as investors, right? Saying, what is the consequences of how the goodies are split up within partnerships? And um, how, how much weight should we be putting in this when we evaluate funds and the like? So given how little research had been done in this area, um, when out of our discussions emerged the possibility of doing a research project examining this, they were quite enthusiastic. And and again, not to you know jump to the punchline, but that that really is such a, a key and practical and applicable and actionable point. This this really was not, and this is what struck me. Um, this is not just a purely academic question. I mean, this is not you, you know, Harvard Business School professor sitting in you know Harvard Business School and thinking big thoughts. But this was a practical you know question from a, you know a major player in the market that said, "Hey, Josh, can you you know we'd, we'd love really love to understand um, should this be making a difference? Should this uh, affect the way we think about investing?" Did I did I interpret that correctly? Absolutely, and you know certainly this is an area where whether you look at the academic literature or even the practitioner literature, you see that there's been almost nothing done about it, you know, presumably because the difficulty of gathering this data and analyzing it has been such to forestall researchers of any stripe or flavor from looking at it. So, so let's get to the patterns that you discovered. You really outlined three uh, major mm-hmm. ones. Uh, why don't I let you take us uh, through them? The first one had to do with the um, allocation of fund uh, economics and, and the, the weighting right. potentially to the founders of the firm. So t- take right. me through the three main patterns that you found. Right. So the first thing has to do with the, the inequality in the, um, in, the, in the funds. And, you know, there are a variety of ways to, to look at this and, uh, and, um, and um, measure this. But certainly if you look at, for instance, a measure which is, you know, somewhat um, akin to what's been used in the um, labor literature where people will look at the relationship between the maximum to the average salary, we do something similar where we look at the relationship, between, you know, for either the senior partners or the, the top two layers of partners, what the ratio between the largest share of carried interest is and the average is. And the first thing that you see when you look here is that you see that there is a lot of, um, a lot of inequality that, you know, if you look at the sort of typical fund and look at, you know, what is, the, you know, what is the largest share of carry relative to the average share? It's roughly among the top two layers of partners. It's roughly uh, two times around 1.85. If you look at the division of ownership, it's closer to uh, around 2.8 times, so even more, um, even more um, 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 skewed distribution of that, with in a relatively few hands having the ownership. But what's perhaps more disturbing than just simply the um, the extent of the inequality has to do with the um, has to do with the the things that drive it, which is to say that. You know, one would think if one was to have the you know, proper alignment of incentives that one of the crucial determinants of how much carried interest an individual partner got would be how successful their past investments had been. But instead, when you look at this in regression analyses or 
even in you know simpler cross tabs, you see very little effect of past performance in terms of driving the share of carried interest that the individuals get. And if you say instead, what seems to be in the driver's seat in terms of determining how much carry or how much ownership people receive, what's really critical is the um, is the whether the individual was one of the founders of the firm or not. And then, and, and believe me, there's a whole bunch of uh, you know why questions that I right. that I have around this. Um, right. and, but there was then a third, I guess. Let's just get so through. That, the, that's really the that's really the first. I sort yep. of bro- I snuck two points in there. <laughs> I felt the, that you might have. Yes. Okay. Right, go ahead. Exactly. Keep going. So then the the sort of second one is essentially that um, this stuff ends up mattering, right? That when we look at who you know who is around when the fund forms and who is around when the next fund is raised, you know, it's, it's not that the losers are leaving or the top performers are leaving. The people who leave and the people who stay are roughly the same in terms of performance. What really drives apparently the decision to leave is your share of the economics that the, that the people who leave by and large have substantially less carried interest, have substantially less ownership than the ones who stay more generally, funds that are more unequal in terms of their splits of the carried interest have um, have more departures than ones which have a flatter a flatter compensation structure. And so, then finally, yep, please I'm, go, I'm go ahead. Yep, go ahead. Finally, when you look at the uh, consequences of those departures, they seem to be quite substantial as well. So if you look at the um, you know typical fund in our sample, which is four senior partners. What you see is that if one of those senior partners leaves, so one of the four leaves in the years after the fund fund closes, what the next fund that they go out and raise ends up being something on the order of 17% smaller. So in other words, not only does this, and not only does the unevenness of compensation translate into departures, but it ultimately translates into um, you know a, le- a lesser ability to go out and raise raise subsequent capital. And so, as I was reading this, and you know, as a layperson thinking about it, and and I don't know if here if ultimately I'm asking you to uh, be more of a psychiatrist than a mm-hmm. you know business professor. Um, but but the, you know, in terms of the why, I mean, there, you know, I could uh, the the competing right. tensions right. between okay, I've started a fund, I'm one of the founders, I want long term right. sustainability, I want right. the next fund to be, you know, I want to be able to raise more in my next fund, right. not seventeen percent less. Competing right. against the thought of right. I'm the founder, you know, right. I, I started this thing. I've got a bit of an entrepreneur's uh, mentality. I should right. get an outsized portion. Right. How, how does that tension get balanced? And, and right. you know, talk to me about that. Well, I think that's certainly one of the big, one of the very big issues that's out there. And I think it's interesting to look at the venture capital industry, where at least at a number of uh, high profile firms, there seem to have been instances where people have walked away without demanding some sort of big payout or so forth, where in many cases people seem to have just been satisfied to perhaps have a little bit of carried interest in the next fund or uh, to just be able to even serve as a special limited partner investing in a no-fee, no-carry basis on subsequent funds. Um, But certainly within many other firms, particularly in the private equity industry, there's been more uh, more of a mentality of saying, 
you know, I've created this thing and I ought to be rewarded for that. This is a valuable asset. Now, as you say, it gets tricky though, because it's also an asset that can just, you know, where you, the firm may be an asset, but it's only really valuable if you have the people inside it. And if your people decide to walk away because you aren't sharing enough with them and they get discouraged, you know, then the asset may be worth very, very little. Um, and you, you certainly see examples of general partners out there who have perhaps rationally decided that they're just going to, you know, milk the cash cow for everything it's got. Yeah. And ultimately the cow will die because it's just been milked to death and they're like, whatever. Um, but you certainly see other instances where people have tried to say, I really want to build a firm that's going to succeed me. And as a result, I need to figure out some way of getting the um, getting the carry and getting the equity into the next generation's hands. And, and so as you looked at it, 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 is it more of a case where in either situation uh, you could have rational actors? You could have a rational actor where the, the founder who wants to milk the cash cow and, and get out and take the, you know, that. That, right. you know, that's understandable. On the other hand, the one who wants to create something lasting, there, there's a different, and maybe just the question that become mm-hmm. most important, which I guess is the, you know, perspective from which you looked at it, mm-hmm. um, from the LPs, from the, right. you know, exactly. It, it, so yeah. you, you can certainly imagine that for uh, a GP, the situation of saying, all right, we're going to lose a bunch of people, but this is going to be good for me, you know, that they could arrive at that kind of calculation. But certainly the appeal of that for a limited partner is much lower. Right. In the sense that, first of all, you know, the, you know, the, there's a general sense that people, that limited partners want to invest in no drama funds, right? Where they're not going to be having to sort of swoop in or deal with complex situations. But more generally, um, you know, certainly when one talks to LPs, one of the important things that's there is emphasized is that typically people are looking for a relatively small number of long-term relationships, where they can be with a fund, fund you know, with an org, private equity organization, fund after fund after fund, and if indeed it's a situation where the thing is going down a course where it's likely that the stability of the uh, stability of the private equity group is being threatened by the actions of the uh, managing general partner, you know that that's unlikely to be a very reassuring or happy uh, event for them. And I guess on some level to junior partners within a GP or, or seniorish junior partners or juniorish senior partners mm-hmm. in a, in a GP, I guess to some level, they, you know, th- there would be some reason to take a look at this and say, okay, I need to have an honest co- conversation with myself and with the firm that I'm in, you know, am I in a place where I guess that's why they end up leaving, which that's, right. you know, seems to be rational action as well. If it's right. uh, in my interest, I'll stay. If it's not, you know, I'm out of here. Right. That, and I think it's probably fair to say that you know, there's certainly lots of examples of firms which have unfortunately not made commitments to the next generation and where the next generation at a certain point decided that they were best served you know, looking elsewhere in a firm which would be more willing to make an investment in them. And, and is there any governmental role in any of this? You, you mentioned that uh, there, there are very few regulations on the topic, mm-hmm. um, but you did right. note that uh, SEC Chair Mary Jo White uh, may be mm-hmm. looking into aspects of this. What, what would be the regulatory interest in this? Why, why, why does it or should it matter? Who, whom would they be looking to protect? 
Well, I think the the concern is one that this is essentially a long-term asset, right? So when you're a pension or or an endowment and signing up with a group, right, you're you're basically entering into a marriage for uh uh, you know, 10, 11, 12 year period. As such, there's sort of a notion which sort of goes back to the 40 Act, the Investor Advisors Act of 1940, which you know sort of was the you know the mother of all regulation in this area, um, which which did you know sort of open the door for the SEC to look at this question about um, you know change of control in in funds and notions of investor consent. So you can see how it might be a topic that would be of um, you know, would be of some degree of interest. And I guess the other area, you know, clearly which is which is out there, you know, we're not opining on it specifically, but you know, as we know, there's been a lot of tension attention to this question both in the US and in Europe about whether um you know whether carried interest should be entitled to um uh, a different kind of tra- tax treatment than ordinary income. Yeah, I was thinking about that as well. And, and you know, obviously as well in society, particularly, well, global society, um, you know, certainly in America and certainly, uh, you know, during this election cycle, um, you know, the questions around, um, you know, it, the the inequality gap and, and you know, mm-hmm. certainly the, the inequality gap that people are worried about is, you know, generally not between the wealthiest, wealthiest, wealthiest private equity fund manager, right. you know, and, and the, you know, only really, you know, wealthy private equity folks. I mean, we're talking about, you know, other, you know, very serious uh, inequality problems. But, but in some level, it, it, it does, it does potentially bring a, fi- a, a fine point to it and a headline almost to it with, when, you know, because it, it can, I guess I'm asking, can it, because it, it struck me and I was starting to wonder, can this help generate some of those headline, you know, outsized returns or, or you know, incomes that, that can get made in the sector? Um, so does this help drive any of that conversation or, or is it, you know, is this kind of something separate? Well, I think that, you know, certainly it is fair to say that at one level, there is essentially was a decision made to treat carried interest in a different kind of way than ordinary income. And a lot of that had to do presumably with the fact that venture capitalists, growth equity investors and the like were, you know, doing something special in terms of helping the firms that were uh, that were there. And certainly the one thing that one could say is that if indeed we're in a situation where there seems to be uh, less of a link between the uh, carried interest and the value creators, at least it raises some questions around uh, around the whole policies in that arena. What are some questions? Did, did you come out with any questions that maybe uh, limited partnerships or, or investors, uh, fund investors should be asking, any, you know, any quick things that they, you know, should be right. asking of the, the GPs? Well, I mean, I think that certainly one thing that I take away from this is that, you know, in many cases, LPs, if you talk to them, they say, oh, we pay attention to fund economics. It's something something we look at and so forth. But if you take this data and results seriously, it really raises the question as to whether they are doing, putting enough weight on it. And certainly one of the things that I would, which is takeaway for me is that as an LP, um, one should be, you know, probably putting more weight on looking 
carefully at the division of the economics within the partnership and using that to inform investment decisions. I think it also implies for GPs, well, you can certainly understand the natural desire of a founder of a firm to want to be rewarded for that effort. It does suggest at least some degree of caution there as to how far um, you know one can go in terms of being rewarded for it without um, you know jeopardizing the, the the proverbial golden goose. And and quickly in terms of other types of partnerships and other businesses and other fields. I mean, you in your career, uh, you, I mean, you have studied physics and the history of technology and economics. You've, you know, you've really been at the intersection of technology, uh, technological innovation and public policy. I mean, you've, you've worked on Capitol Hill. I mean, the range of, of interests and areas where you've, you know, worked in your life is, is really extraordinary. Are there principles out of what you've discovered here that you think, you know, at the highest levels might be applicable uh, to other types of business partnerships that they should think about? Or are these really intrinsic to private equity partnerships and, and not really transferable? No, I think that many of these issues surface in a wide variety of contexts, right? So if you think about, for instance, some of the media attention that's been devoted to the succession issues at Bridgewater, for instance, in the hedge fund world. You know, clearly many of the issues that have been discussed in press accounts seem to echo some of the considerations seen, uh, seen, seen here. You know, similarly, I think if you look at many other forms of partnerships, and it would certainly include you know, investment firms like um, real estate funds and so forth, you would see many of the um, you know same issues rearing their rearing their heads. So I think that this has um, you know we know that um, you know partnerships are a big economic form and investment partnerships have clearly represented a growing share of assets um, of um, of global investors. So I think there's a sort of much broader applicability of these issues beyond the private equity realm per se. And Josh, just to, to close out and turn slightly, um, what is the Private Capital uh, Research Institute? The Private Capital Research Institute, or the PCRI, is a nonprofit we set up a few years ago, which is trying to accelerate research about private capital, by which we include both the venture and buyout spaces. And in particular, we have a couple of different fo- focuses. Um, one of those is in terms of building out a research database that's readily available to academics around the world. And in particular, we have gotten data from probably close to 50 of the top 100 private equity groups uh, around the world um, on transactions and the like. We have gotten data from many of the commercial data providers. The use of this database is restricted to academics. We put a variety of protections in so that Essentially, the academics can't download the database or even look at the database. They can instead just, you know, throw queries over the fence, you know, various kinds of tabulations or regressions that they might want to run and get the answers back from them. And essentially, it's providing a resource that will hopefully accelerate the pace of discovery about this area, which is so important both from an investment perspective as well as a policy perspective today. The other activities we do have to do with 
more on the education side, really trying to encourage the meeting of minds between thoughtful practitioners and top-tier researchers. So we have a variety of events. For instance, we're doing something next month with the Institutional Limited Partners Association, looking at uh, new methods of encouraging alignment between limited partners and general partners that include a variety of academics as well as um, practitioners, limited and general partners. So there's a variety of things under the umbrella, but it's been an exciting effort, and our hope is that over the next few years it'll have a big impact in terms of encouraging more research and thinking about these area. And is it really a response to the growing role that private capital plays in the, you know, not only the domestic economy, but also the global economy? I mean, it's, as I, you know, really have looked at uh, PCRI, it's striking to me, um, it, first of all, it's striking to me how little other data, you know, exists. I mean, I get it. I understand why. And when you talk about all the limits and, and kind of walls around that, I mean, it's, that's really, really, um, obviously precious data that, that you have access to. And, and so collecting that is, um, you know, clearly sensitive and, and difficult. But is it really a, a, a response or, um, you know, because of the, the growing role that uh, private capital plays in the global economy? Yeah, that essentially when you look at it today, you can say there's really, um, you know, two sources of hunger for knowledge, right? The, um, um, the, the first is the, um, the first is the fact that you have, you know, many institutions increasing their allocations to alternatives. And in many cases, even many of the basic questions they might want to ask, um, you know, is there persistence of performance? So does the top care fund continue to perform, for instance? or what is really the risk-adjusted performance of his asset class, are really quite murky. It's murky in the practitioner literature. It's murky in the academic literature. So there's a lot of hunger for knowledge there. And then secondly, as one says, is um, you know governments engage more in terms of alternative investments, whether it's trying to encourage venture capital, whether it's trying to regulate buyout funds or the like. Again, there's a real hunger and a real need for objective facts rather than, you know, dramatic assertions of one kind or another based on a few case studies. Well, that's uh, the type of information that surely uh, will come out of the future research from the Private Capital Research Institute, uh, the PCRI. Josh Lerner is chair uh, of the Entrepreneurial Management Unit and is the Schiff Professor of Investment Banking at the Harvard Business School. He's also vice chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on the Future of Investing and the director of the PCRI. His newest paper is Pay Now or Pay Later, the Economics Within the Private Equity partnership. Josh, thank you so much for your time. I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations.